If you turn in your Bible with me to 1 Peter chapter 2, 1 Peter chapter 2, and we are going to be looking together at verses 9 through 11, 9 through 11. Just want to, again, thank you for coming on out on a wintry night and gathering together. I, um, I believe the Lord is so pleased and honored by that when we, t- when we make an effort um, to just be with God's people and be under his means of grace. Uh, we honor the Lord when we trust that he has something for us in that. And so, uh, just thank you. And um, I think it's pleasing to God that we're here tonight. Know Thyself is the t- message, uh, the title of my message. And uh, we're going to be looking at how Peter is striving to uh, pound home what it means to be a Christian in our text tonight. I'm going to begin at verse 9 and read through uh, verse, verse 12. Let's give our attention to the Word of God. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Let's ask the Lord's blessing on his word. Speak, O Lord, tonight again, as you promised to do, by your spirit and through your word, we, we need to hear from God. We want to hear from God. Uh, you know our need. You know our blindness. You know our, our fears, our weaknesses. Uh, Lord Jesus, I pray that tonight you would love us uh, by ministering your word to our hearts. That we might be just encouraged and filled uh, with faith and delight in you again tonight and all that you've done for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said, the title of my message tonight is Know Thyself. That was uh, if you uh, took any basic philosophy classes in in college or high school possibly. Uh, You know, that was sort of the foundation for the Greeks' philosophical pursuit. Uh, Know thyself. That was the maxim. They believed that uh, that was the most essential task, uh, the most beneficial task, is to try to understand what does it mean to be a man? Who are we? Where did we come from? Uh, what is our place in the universe? What's our purpose here? What are, we, what are we supposed to do? What is our destiny and, and how do we attain it? Those were the fundamental questions uh, that the philosophers would ask. And those are, in truth, the fundamental questions that every person made in the image of God wrestles with at some level. We sense that there must be some purpose. We sense that there must be some identity that we're supposed to grasp and understand. Well, Peter, as we said last time, is writing to this, these scattered believers in the world. They are, they are not welcome in the world. He, he's, he calls them sojourners and strangers, exiles. They're not at home here. And yet this is where God has called them to live. And um, he wants them to understand in that context the glory of who they actually are. 
They are despised, as I said, by the world, but, but they are so treasured and, and delighted in, in the sight of God. He wants them to understand their identity. And I believe that for the church today, it's one of the essential things for us to understand who we actually are. One of the things that's happened in the American church is I think there's been a lot of blending of sort of a, a, a civil religion so that we think of ourselves Christians and Americans and, um, and middle, maybe white, uh, Dutch, middle class, whatever. Those are the, all the various strands of our identity, but the Christian strand may be being the weakest in our mind. To, to talk about being a Christian for some people means you go to church. Others, it means you believe in certain doctrines, but that is such a vague conception. It's like saying the Alps are some rocks over in Europe, or the Pacific Ocean is a small puddle off the coast, the coast of California. It just doesn't do justice, you see, to the glory of what it actually means to be a Christian. And I believe that as we live in a culture that is increasingly pressuring the church to conform to the culture, as we experience increasing persecution, as we see increasing societal and political decay, we need to, we need to know who we are. We need to know what we are. We need to know why we're here, how we got here. We need to know where we're going. I think that's particularly true, again, in a a, uh, context of a culture that has lost its identity. Do you understand? We live in a culture that does not know the answers to any of these questions. I read a fascinating article last week by Brendan O'Neill entitled, The Crisis of Character, Identity Politics, and the Death of the Individual. He writes this, the New York Times calls 2015 the year we obsessed over identity. The ascendancy of what is called self-identification is one of the most notable developments of the 21st century thus far. Nothing speaks more profoundly to the crisis of character than the phrase, I identify as. He says, in the past, individuals were. I am a builder. I am a mother. I am a Jew. There was a confidence, a certainty uh, to their sense of identity and their declaration of it. I am. Today, individuals identify as something. I identify as a woman. I identify as non-binary. It speaks to a shift from being to passing through, from a clear sense of presence in the world to a feeling of transience, from identities that are rooted to identities that are tentative, insecure, and questionable. And so you have all sorts of uh, astounding things happening as people assert their right to self-identify, declare in uh, their identity regardless of anything objective or external to them. And so you have women's colleges accepting men as women. Uh, the Facebook, you, who knows how many gender um, possibilities now you could, you could name. I think it's around 70 different options when it comes to gender. And what, what O'Neill points out, he says, the truly notable thing about today is not just the obsession with identity, but the instability of this identity. He says, people have been looking for identity since they were created, but what's new today is that identity has become an incredibly subjective phenomenon. So that where your identity in the past was shaped by things external to you, things you had no control over. 
You were born in a, into a certain class. You were born into a certain social class, economic class, you, a certain race, occupation, gender. They were all objective, identifiable truths. But today, identities are self-constructed and, and often purely on the basis of what you might feel. And that shift has made for them an increasingly fragile, frightened, and floundering generation. You see, the, the problem with creating your own identity instead of having an identity rooted in things that are objectively true, if you just create your own identity contrary to objective truth, your identity is as ephemeral as the wind. You are truly adrift in the universe. You have no objective points of reference. Who in the whole wide world are you actually? And people will say, well, today I'm this, and tomorrow I might be that, and the next day I might be that. It feels like freedom, but it is bondage simply to your own feelings, your own uh, pretended autonomy, and you are driftless. O'Neill points out that this is why the, so many in the homosexual and transgender community are uh, stridently, angrily demanding that society accept their self-assigned identities. It's not just bad temper. It's a frantic need for validation and confirmation. They desperately need someone or something to give a sense of substance to their fictional and fabricated self. If you just make it up, what is it rooted in? What's the significance of it? Well, you've got to battle then to have others affirm your fabricated self-identity. I think one of the sinful tendencies in the church is just to laugh at the foolishness that we see around us. Just to laugh in disbelief at what's going on in the, in the world today. I, uh, in this article, read um, that abortion clinics are in, in the UK are now saying that they'll perform abortions for women and all other genders, as though there are other genders capable of bearing children. And it's just utter foolishness, absolute foolishness. But you see, to laugh is, to, is, is completely to miss the point and, it, and, and, it, and to fail to do justice to the, the problem and to the answer to the problem. You see, what's happening is that we live in a generation that's lost their way. They've been told they're a cosmic accident. They've been told they come from nothing and they go to nothing, that they mean nothing. There's no point to any of it except what you can create for yourself. And that's what they're trying to do. And you see, you bind that then with the devil's lie that you actually can live an autonomous life. You can create an autonomous self apart from the God who made you in his image. And so, and, and the devil tells them that's what freedom actually is. And so people pursue that. But don't laugh. Don't laugh. It is an unbelievable tragedy. It's an unbelievable tragedy. It's a sign of how lost this generation is, how desperately they need Jesus Christ. When Paul went to, uh, to uh, Athens, he didn't laugh at the Athenians, at the ridiculous, over-the-top number of idols everywhere you look there's an, another idol to another god everywhere he didn't laugh at it he said i see that you are very religious and then told them about jesus 
There's an unknown God I want to present to you. And that's exactly, friends, what we're called to do in the world today. Not just to laugh at the foolishness, to grieve the foolishness, and then speak the gospel truth into the foolishness. We have an incredible job to do, a great mission. But if we're going to do that, we need to know who we are. We need to know what it means to be a Christian. And Peter then in our text wants to introduce you to yourself. If you've come to Jesus, then he wants to introduce you to what you actually are, to see your glorious God-given, Christ-formed-in-you, spirit-created and empowered identity. This is who you are and this is why you exist. And those are the two main points of my message tonight, who you are and why you exist. Verses 9 and 10, Peter lists several tremendous truths about who you are. You are a chosen race. We covered this a bit last time, but it it is such a prominent theme in the Scripture. It matters so much. You see, the human heart hungers for this. It hungers to belong, to be counted, to be chosen. Do you remember being 10 years old on the the playground when uh, the the cool kids were picking the teams and how, how much you wanted to be chosen? That's born and bred within you. It's ingrained within you. Athletes dream of being chosen for the Pro Bowl or or the Hall of Fame. Employees uh, want to be chosen for the promotion. Movie stars and journalists and politicians all have their awards and honors and eagerly pursue them. Why? Because being chosen means you matter. Being chosen means you matter. It's one of the reasons we love to fall in love. Somebody chose us. Somebody wants us, desires us, it, it confers status and significance, it, it makes you feel like you count, like you matter. Well, Peter wants you to know the most incredible, amazing thing. The cool kid on the playground isn't the one who's chosen you, the living God has chosen you. You are a chosen race. You're chosen by God and not everyone is. And it's not because you're better than anyone. In fact, we know from Scripture that God chooses the lowly things, the lowly things, the, the despised things. But you're chosen. See, and it's, it's not just a higher honor than winning an Emmy, it, it, winning some award. It, it's a completely different category than the honors of men. You see, the, the honors of men are conferred on those who are worthy, always conferred on those who are worthy. But the honors of divine election are freely, graciously given to those who are demonstrably unworthy. God says to Israel, remember in the Old Testament, I'm I'm not choosing you because you're such a great nation. They're barely a nation at all, and they're a stiff-necked people. And yet, in order to magnify the glory of His grace, He loves Israel. He loves them. He doesn't choose them begrudgingly. He doesn't hold His nose as He chooses them. He sets His love upon them. And he's done the same for you if you're a Christian. The honors of men quickly are forgotten in the passage of time. Uh, Most of the awards that people give, I mean, what are they? They're a little plaque you hang on the wall, a little statue you put on the mantle. Next year, no one remembers uh, what happened. Nobody nobody remembers your name in in just a few short years. But you see, the, the, the honors that come from being chosen by God are fixed for all of eternity. They'll never diminish ever. All the benefits and privileges of men's honors are short-lived, easily, quickly lost. Bill Cosby was once widely heralded, given um, honorary degrees by universities. 
And now they're taking them back, and he's scorned and ridiculed. And the list of men, I mean, just think, Joe Paterno, Brian Williams, Lance Armstrong, Brett Farr, Paula Dean. You could just, the list goes on and on and on and on and on. As quickly as this culture creates celebrities, it rips them down. When it finds flaws that stand in some way contrary to the, the principles or the, uh, at that moment, interests of the culture. It's so fickle. But you see, the benefits and privileges of being chosen by God are benefits and privileges that only increase in unimaginable glory and can never be taken away no matter how great you're failing. You realize that? No matter how great your, fa- your failure, you can't lose your election. God's calling and election are sure. You're not going to lose your election. If someone could lose his election, it would have been King David. And the incredible privileges that he had, the credible communion that he experienced with God, the benefits and spiritual advantages that he was given, and then to do what he did, knowing exactly what he was doing as he did it. And then to lie, to stand in front of even God's prophet and try to pretend that he, he is righteous as he gets so upset about this story here of a man who's, who took the one sheep that this poor man had. And he had all kinds of sheep. There was one sheep and he sacrificed that sheep. And David was livid. That man must die. And Nathan says, you're the man. What unbelievable sin. And though there were consequences, David did not lose his election. He did not lose his calling. He was a beloved child of God. He was held fast, as the song says tonight. So it's an unbelievable thing, friend. The, the rock of your, of your identity ought to be, I've been chosen by God in Jesus Christ. The world will encourage you to seek your identity and your accomplishments, your abilities, your, your looks, whatever. Something about you. And people, even in the church, seek their identity in, in, their, in their career. They seek their identity in their family. They seek their identity in their children. Maybe in their social status. Maybe their hobbies. Maybe some cause that they're excited about. But this is, this is the core of a Christian's identity. I've been chosen by God. I've been chosen by God. And I've been chosen to be, secondly, God's holy nation, a people that's set apart, a people that belongs to God. If you're a Christian, you don't belong to you. You don't belong to the world. You're, you're a sojourn in the world. You're an exile in the world. You're an alien in the world. You don't belong in that sense to the principles and powers of this world. You belong to Jesus. Paul says that in Romans 1.6, called to belong to Jesus. I just love that way of talking about a Christian. To those saints in Rome called to belong to Jesus Christ. That's the great truth captured by the Heidelberg Catechism. First question and answer. What is your comfort in life and death? Your, your chief foundational comfort in life and death. Well, I'll tell you what it is. It's that I do not belong to Dale Van Dyke. I don't belong to my parents. I don't belong to some uh, class, some, some uh, human group. I belong body and soul, life and death to my faithful Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's the foundation of my identity. Isn't that gloriously true? Is that if you're a Christian, you belong to Jesus? And that Jesus delights to claim you as his own? God delights to call you his treasured possession, a people for his own possession. 
That might not seem like a big thing because God owns everything, but, but when he's talking treasured possession, he's saying the thing that he delights in above all other things and that he calls and claims for himself in a particular way, a people that where he is known as their God and they are his people. Such a beautiful thing. Paul captures in 2 Corinthians 6, 16, quoting from the Old Testament, where God says, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. It speaks of intimacy. It speaks the fact that God takes his name and places it on his children. He takes his honor and attaches it to the well-being of his children. His glory is attached to your... your, your person, your, your, your well-being, your eternal destiny. God's honor stands there. I love the story of Corrie ten Boom. When, when someone asked her, how, how do you know that you're not going to fall away? How do you know that, that God's at some point just not going to grow tired of you? And she said, if God lets me fall away, I would lose my soul, but he would lose his honor. He would lose his honor because God has tied his honor, his faithfulness to the salvation and eternal privilege and blessing of his people. You're his treasure possession if you're a Christian. It's an amazing thing to be able to say. And you have communion then with God. He walks with you. He is, he is not ashamed to be called your God. Isn't that an amazing thought? God's not ashamed to be called your God. He knows you. He he sees all the failures and all the weaknesses, but he's not ashamed to be called your God because he has promised to overcome all those weaknesses and to bring you into your eternal destiny. You are therefore a mercied people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Once you weren't a people, now you are a people. Once you had not received mercy, now you've received mercy. In the Greek, it's it's one word. You've been mercied. It's a verb. God has, has acted towards you with compassion, with, with kindness. He, he saw you in your great need. He saw you ruined and broken in the fall. And he loved you, notwithstanding all. Uh, we have a picture in, in, in Ezekiel where God says about Israel, I came and I found you. You were, you were cast aside, still there in the afterbirth as an infant, dying. And I took you and I cleaned you and I took you home and I fed you and I clothed you and you grew up and you became beautiful. And then the great sin of Israel is that they went and used their beauty to attract foreign men and, and, and other gods. They sinned against God. But, but God in the gospel of Jesus Christ found us dead, bound for hell, hating God, being hated. I'd like you to turn, if you would, to Titus chapter 3. I think it captures this, uh, this concept of God's kindness and mercy to us in such a beautiful way. Think of Paul, the man who writes this, a man who was killing Christians thinking, thinking he was doing the will of God. He called himself the greatest display of the patience of God. Titus chapter 3, verses 3 through 7. You see, the, the mercy of God both humbles us and exalts us. It admits us, it makes us admit we needed mercy, and then we can exalt in the grace that we've received. Look, look at what Paul says in Titus 3, 3 through 7. For we ourselves were once foolish. You want to you, you shake your head at the foolishness of the world? Well, get in line. You, you've never been utterly, absolutely foolish foolish before the Lord? Absolutely. Sure we have. We were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness 
and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared in Jesus. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. We were the orphans in the desolate orphanage, and we were there because we wanted to be in that sense, right? We hated God and loved our sin, but God loved us and showed mercy to us, unbelievable mercy. He justified us by the death of Jesus Christ and made you an heir of everlasting life. What amazing mercy. You see, in summary, the Christian's identity is all about God, isn't it? Your identity isn't based on what others have done to you or said to you. It's not based on what you've done, either your failures or your successes. As a Christian, your identity is rooted in, established upon, defined by all that God has done for you in Jesus Christ. God determines who you are. Piper says this, the biblical understanding of human self-identity is radically God-centered. Christian selfhood is defined in terms of what God does to us and the relationship he creates with us and the destiny to which he appoints us. In other words, as a Christian, you cannot talk about your identity without talking about the action of God on you, the relationship of God with you, and the purpose of God for you. This is who you are, someone who's been acted upon by God, someone who has a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, and someone whose destiny is to be with God forever in a new heaven and a new earth. This is who you are. I want you to just think about what would that mean for you to take that uh, out of this building tonight and take it home with you into uh, the house where you live. What does it mean to be a person, you see, that, that has all these riches? Don't you think it maybe would help us put aside the petty little bickerings and fights we get into, the, the self-centeredness that we fall prey to? Don't you think it, would, it, would give us, it ought to give us a heart to pour ourselves out to loving each other? Our brothers and sisters in Christ, heirs with us of everlasting life, don't you think this would put an end to so much of the tension that sometimes is in our homes? That would, this would free us to give ourselves away, our time away, our, our resources, our energy, give ourselves away to the glory of God and just to bless other people. What would this look like when you go to work? It, it means, you see, that your, your destiny isn't determined by what your boss says. Your destiny isn't determined by how people around you uh, treat you. Your destiny is determined by the God who made you, the God who gave you to Jesus Christ, who loved you and has shown mercy to you and promises you that you will not fall, that you are more than a conqueror in Jesus Christ. There ought to be a skip to our step. There ought to be a smile on our face. No matter what the world says or what the world does, we are the chosen race of God. We are the treasured possession of God. We are the mercied people of God. It's an astonishing thing to be a Christian. It's an astonishing thing. And we have a purpose. We have a calling. Why do we exist? What's our purpose? 
Again, people are, the, the culture we live in will say the purpose is to be happy any way you can choose. The, your purpose is uh, to, to find yourself. Your purpose is to express yourself. The purpose is to, uh, it's all self, self, self. Well, you see, the, the wonder of the gospel is that it's done with self. It's not about you. It's not about me. Why did God choose you? Why did he make you his treasured possession? Why did he pour out his mercy and, and give you to Jesus Christ and promise you the destiny of everlasting life? Why did he do it? So that, Peter says, you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. God has called you into the marvelous light of divine election. He's called you into the marvelous light of being a holy nation, a priesthood belonging to God. We covered that last week, so I jumped over it tonight. But to be the priests of God who wear the robe of Christ's righteousness and who serve God in this world, who worship God and offer up sacrifices of praise, God has done all of this so that you might proclaim His excellency. God, you see, made us who we are so we could show the world who He is. That's how it works. Let me just give you Piper one more time. He says, God has given us our identity in order that his identity might be proclaimed through us. God made us who we are so we could make known who he is. The meaning of our identity is that the excellency of God might be seen in us. It's not about, you see, your identity in that sense isn't, isn't even about you. As glorious and beautiful and wonderful as it is, it has an end, a purpose, a goal in mind. To, to proclaim the excellencies, the magnificence, the beauty, the glory, the love, the faithfulness, the kindness, the patience of God. It's about God. That's why we exist. That's what we're here for. That's why we've, been, we've received all of these amazing blessings. It is at the core of our identity. It's what you do. It's what I do in Jesus Christ. It's the calling. Reminds me of an old gospel hymn I used to sing with my brothers when we had a little quartet going. Amid life's busy, hurrying throng, the gay, the sad, the weak, the strong, while I am traveling along, I want my life to tell for Jesus. And that was the chorus. I want my life to tell for Jesus. I want my life to tell for Jesus that everywhere I go, men may his goodness know. I want my life to tell for Jesus. Isn't that what you want? Isn't that what you want? Isn't that why it, it is so frustrating and painful when we sin? Or when we're just spiritually apathetic? when we just act like the world and just go along with the world? Isn't, isn't that the, the pain of it? And isn't that the, the, the beauty when you sense that God is at work and God is making a difference in your life? God is transforming you and you're able to, to talk about His goodness and His faithfulness and His patience and His love and His power with some authority, with some authenticity because you can say, it's happening in my life. He's doing, it. He's doing it in my life, and, and I don't deserve it, and I'm not even quite sure exactly how it's happening, but, but the Lord is weaning me from my, my lusts for the things of this world and, and weaning me from my addiction to myself, and he's, he's making me more gentle. He's teaching me how to be more thoughtful, how to be more kind. He's, he's, he's getting my, my sights off the, the passing things that are all around me and onto things that are eternal, and it's a beautiful thing to see. I want my life to tell for Jesus. That's it. 
That's it. So how do you do that? We'll wrap with this. How do you do that practically? Well, verses 11 and 12, Peter just gives us two things. First, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Uh, having a life that tells for Jesus means that you pursue holiness. The battle for holiness isn't just a battle to get rid of besetting sins. It's not just the battle to be a better person. The battle for holiness is to, is to polish the mirror in a sense that's supposed to be reflecting the beauty of God. That, that your life is more and more able to, to, to reflect in truth and some of the beauty of Jesus, some of the goodness of God, the worth that you ascribe to Him. So you see, the question is, how do we fight sin in a way that it proclaims the excellencies of God? You can fight sin in a way that proclaims your self-will, your, your strong self-discipline. But how do you fight sin so that it declares the excellencies of God? Well, you do it probably starting with trusting in the gospel. You fight sin believing that Jesus Christ died to sin and you died to sin with Jesus. That the dominion of sin is broken because the gospel is true. And that because Jesus Christ was raised to life and because the power of that life is now in you and for you by the Holy Spirit, you are going to commit yourself to walking after Jesus. You're not going to settle, you see, for the same old way. You're not just going to accept that this is just the way that I am, and, and I'm, I can't really make any progress. It's not true. It's not true. You can grow, and we fight for growth, not to make ourselves better persons, but because we want to reflect the glory and the beauty of God. We, we fight for, for holiness, because, you see, we're hungry for the greater worth of God. That's one way to fight your sin. You see, it's not to say you're, you're resisting something. You're pursuing something. You want the greater joy of knowing God and, and abiding in Jesus Christ and bearing the fruit that comes from that. Moses, we read in Hebrews chapter 11, considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to his reward. And so when the friends say to you, why, you used to go, to us and, go with us and do these things. You used to laugh at these jokes. You used to participate in these activities. Why don't you do those things anymore? What do you, you think you're better than us? What kind, of, what kind of strange church you go to? We're Christians. You don't say, well, I'm just, I'm just trying to clean up my act. I'm trying to turn over a new leaf. You say, oh, friends, there's a reward. The reward is Jesus. I want to know Jesus. I want my life to tell for him. And I think that the reproach of Jesus Christ is, is of greater wealth than all the treasures of Egypt. That's how you fight sin, to proclaim the excellencies of God. You want to fight sin because you love what's good and what's true and what's pure, what's holy, what's beautiful, and what magnifies him. And Peter says we need to be doing that then among the Gentiles. Do this among the Gentiles. Pursue good deeds, particularly the good deeds of worship and love and mercy. In the, right in the middle of the world. Be in the world, not of it, but in it. Give yourself to things that honor God, things like worship, Things like his word, things like your brothers and sisters in Christ, things like mercy and kindness to people who don't deserve it, things like forgiveness and grace. There is incredible proclaiming power when Christians follow Jesus in goodness, 
in kindness, in patience, in mercy. And it's such a, there's such a powerful, and do you know that my, one of the reasons, the ultimate reason that I'm a believer today is because God chose me in Christ, but one of the means that God used to do that was some Dutch construction workers in Chicago area in the early 1900s invited my unbelieving grandfather when he was 19, 20 years old to come to church with them. And so he went to this Dutch church where, uh, because he was from the Netherlands, he didn't know the English language. And he heard the gospel, he heard about Jesus Christ, came from a fiercely uh, unbelieving family back in the Netherlands. And my grandpa became a Christian and taught that faith to his 11 children. And they passed it on down to theirs. There's incredible power, you see, in just basic, simple kindness and goodness when we reach out to others in Jesus' name. I heard a story of a man, Doug, works uh, with missions in, in India. He was, came, uh, came uh, sick with tuberculosis. He was so sick that he couldn't travel. So he ended up in a little hospital in the out back of, uh, of India, uh, was there coughing and coughing, and, and next to him was an emaciated old man. He woke up one morning early in the morning. He was, he, Doug decided as a Christian he was going to try to witness there, so he was trying to hand out little gospels, but nobody wanted them. They, they resented him being there. Here's this rich American um, just taking up another bed, this arrogant, this arrogant American, and so they refused to listen uh, or receive his, his little gospel booklets. But he woke up one night, and the old man next to him was uh, trying to get out of bed, coughing and coughing, and the old man got up and, and tried to take a step and didn't have the strength and fell back down and began to cry. And the next morning, um, the nurses came. The stench was overwhelming. This man had been trying to get to the restroom and hadn't been able to, and uh, one of the nurses slapped this old man, and uh, they cleaned him up, and the day went on. Well, that night, the same thing happened early, 2.30 in the morning. This old man was coughing and coughing, and he tried to get out of bed again, and, and um, he couldn't, couldn't do it, and collapsed back in his bed and began to cry. And, and Doug, though he was also racked with tuberculosis and very weak, uh, went and picked this old guy up, maybe weighed 100 pounds, and took him to the bathroom and, and helped him out and brought him back, put him in bed. And um, Doug was w woken up about 4.30 in the morning. Uh, someone, another patient, was there with a cup of hot tea and gave it to Doug and asked for one of those little booklets. And for the rest of the day, people were coming to him and asking if they could have one of the little booklets. There's incredible power, friends, in mercy, in kindness. Whether it's at the grocery store, when you just see a harassed mother and you find some way to bless her, you, these people... People are in front of you all the time. People who are lost, people who are hurting, people who are confused, people who don't know the way, they don't understand, but there's life and light in Jesus Christ, and God has called us to show it. And so let's, let's commit ourselves to that. In all the riches that we have in Jesus and the beauty of the identity that we, that we have in Him and knowing why we exist, we exist in this world to proclaim, to manifest the glory and the beauty of our Savior, to proclaim the excellencies of the God who called us. May God give you joy as you go forth to do it. Amen. Well, God in heaven, you've been so kind to us. It's a staggering thing to be a people chosen by God. Who are we? And we are nothing, that's the truth. 
We're no better than any of the thousands and the millions who are not chosen. Father, I pray that your grace would break our hard hearts. I pray that your kindness and your patience would break our addiction to ourself, our infatuation with the idols in our hearts and lives and in the world around us. That we would realize that there are many, many good gifts to be enjoyed, but none of, the, none of them are life. Jesus is life. And that, Lord, we would um, be encouraged and strengthened because of our identity as your treasured possession, your holy race, of people belonging to Jesus Christ. And that, that, Lord, there would be out of that then a life of love, a life of kindness. What a beautiful thing is kindness. A life of gentleness, a life of patience, a life where there's not fear of what people say or what people think, a life where we're freed to reach out, to help, to care, where we're free to bear the reproach of Christ as we invite people to come and discover the light. Oh God, I pray that you would help us as a church learn to walk this way, that these truths, oh God, would transform us, take root and bear fruit even this week, and we'll give you all the praise for it. In Jesus' name, amen.